Welcome to the MCG Pediatric Podcast. This is Mary Beth Mahaffey, and I'm a medical student here at the Medical College of Georgia in Augusta. On today's episode, we will discuss amenorrhea in the female adolescent patient. To help with our discussion, I am joined by Lauren Brewer, who is also a medical student here at MCG. Thanks, Mary Beth. It's great to be here. I also have the pleasure of introducing Dr. Narutma Sharma, who is a pediatric hospitalist at the Children's Hospital of Georgia. Dr. Sharma was previously trained in obstetrics and gynecology before becoming a pediatrician, so she offers a unique perspective. Welcome, Dr. Sharma. Thank you for having me. As previously mentioned, today we will be discussing amenorrhea in the pediatric population. Specifically, we will review the common history and physical exam findings associated with amenorrhea, differentiate between the causes of primary and secondary amenorrhea, discuss the initial diagnostic approach, review prevention, screening, and appropriate therapy, and finally, discuss the female athlete triad. Let's get started. While menstruation is a normal and regular event in every healthy adolescent girl's life, you'd be surprised by how many adolescent females experience menstrual irregularities. Menstruation abnormalities affect up to 75% of adolescent females and account for a large portion of visits to the doctor as well as for missed school. You make a good point, Dr. Sharma. Even though they are exceedingly common, menstrual irregularities may not be openly discussed by adolescent patients, potentially due to feelings of embarrassment, shame, or anxiety. As a result, these girls may suffer miserable cycles of pain and isolation. It's something we absolutely need to talk more openly about as medical providers to help normalize the conversation. Agreed. It's very important to have open and frank discussions about these topics, especially as adolescent girls and even their caretakers may not be aware of what to expect with the onset of menarche. This includes expected average cycle lengths, flow lengths, and flow amounts. Being able to identify any abnormalities in menstruation early on in adolescence can help prevent the development of future problems in adulthood. Absolutely. So there are actually several types of menstrual irregularities, but today we will be focusing on amenorrhea, the absence of menstrual periods. Let's start a discussion off with a clinical case. We have a 16-year-old girl who presents to her pediatrician because she hasn't had her period for the past five months. Her mother is worried that something may be wrong. The child has no other medical problems. Mary Beth, what else do you want to know? Well, first of all, for any female that is of childbearing age that has not had a period for more than one month, you need to rule out pregnancy. Good point. Let's say that she denies ever being sexually active. Well, I would want to know when she started her menses, how long her cycles are, and the amount of bleeding she experiences. Good job. When adolescents reach menarche, it's important to ask about the date of the last menstrual cycle, as well as the pattern of menses. This helps to identify any abnormalities. For our patient, her period started when she was 11 years old. Her menses were irregular for about 2 years after onset, occurring every 1 to 5 months. After she turned 13 years old, her menses began occurring every 28 days and lasted for 5 days. She usually goes through about three to four menstrual pads per day with cramping mainly on the first two days. However, she has not had a period for the last five months. Lauren, what can we conclude from this information? Well, it looks like there are two times when our patient has experienced a menstrual irregularity. First, when she reached menarche and had irregular periods for two or so years, and again now with the cessation of her normal menses for the past five months. 
That's correct. Regarding her first menstrual abnormality, for the first couple of years after menstruation begins, longer, more irregular cycles are common and not a cause for concern. The irregularity of cycles during this time is due to something called anovulation, which means the body isn't ovulating monthly. Mary Beth, can you tell us why this occurs? Irregular periods for the first two years after menarche are normal because the hypothalamic-pituitary-adrenal axis is immature. However, this is usually transient, as seen in our patient, whose cycle normalized for about three years before the second menstrual regularity. We've talked a little bit about irregular cycles. Lauren, what's considered a regular menstrual cycle? Well, the median age for menarche is around 12 to 13 years in well-developed, resource-rich countries. Menarche usually happens within two to three years of breast bud development. By the age of 15, about 98% of females have reached menarche. The average cycle length is one month long, and flow usually lasts for about a week or so. Very good. It's important to note, just because someone may be developing earlier or later than these ages does not necessarily mean there is an underlying problem. The normal age range for menarche can be anywhere from 9 to 15 years old. Everyone is different. Very true. Given that, when should a provider begin evaluating for a menstrual abnormality? In general, if a female adolescent has not had menarche by 15 years of age, has not had menarche within 3 years of breast bud development, or has not had breast development by 13 years of age, she should be evaluated for amenorrhea. Let's clarify the definition of amenorrhea. Amenorrhea refers to an absence of menstrual periods. It can be further divided into primary and secondary. Let's first talk about primary amenorrhea. This is when a female has not had a menstrual period by the age of 15. What would be some causes of primary amenorrhea that a provider should consider? Well, genetic conditions should always be considered in the differential. The most common cause is gonadal dysgenesis, usually due to Turner syndrome. Turner syndrome occurs when one of the X chromosomes is partially or completely missing. This results in dysfunctional ovaries and low estrogen. Androgen insensitivity syndrome is another genetic cause. Patients have the karyotype 46XY and male internal gonads, but are phenotypically female due to a defect in the androgen receptor leading to the absence of male external genitalia. Right. Anatomic defects should be considered in the differential for primary amenorrhea. Mary Beth, can you think of any conditions? In malarian agenesis, also known as Mayer-Rokitansky-Custer-Hauser syndrome, patients have normal breast development, female external genitalia, and ovaries, but have an absent uterus and upper one-third of the vagina. Other anatomic causes to consider are an imperforate hymen and transverse vaginal septum, which can block menstrual flow. Females younger than age 15 may present with cyclic pelvic pain due to these conditions. Another possible cause of amenorrhea is constitutional delay of puberty. Patients may mention a history of a parent or sibling who was a late bloomer. In contrast, there is also secondary amenorrhea. This occurs when menses that were regular are then absent for at least three months or when irregular menses are absent for at least six months. In other words, the individual has menstruated in the past, but their menstrual periods have stopped occurring. So a female adolescent has reached menarche and has appropriate secondary sexual characteristics like breast development. This rules out primary amenorrhea? Yes, the fact that our patient previously had regular menstrual cycles helps us narrow our differential diagnosis to secondary amenorrhea. Remember, though, that there may be some overlap if causes that are usually associated with secondary amenorrhea are present before menarche. 
Lauren, what other information from the history would be important to know? First, I would want to know if the patient's amenorrhea began abruptly or had a gradual onset, and I would want to know if there were any inciting events. It's also important to ask about changes in appetite, weight, and lifestyle. Has she lost weight, gained weight? What types of foods does she eat? How much does she exercise? We should also ask about symptoms that could be related to endocrine function, like constipation or diarrhea, feeling cold when others are hot, or hot when others are cold, having fatigue, and even palpitations. These symptoms, combined with a history of unintended weight gain or loss, could point towards a thyroid disorder, as both both hyperthyroid and hypothyroid states can cause amenorrhea. Other things to consider would be asking about a history of headaches, changes in vision, or galactorrhea, since these symptoms could point to a prolactin-producing pituitary tumor. Skin changes such as acne or increased hair growth on the face or chest would be signs of excess androgen activity and could point towards a different diagnosis. We should also remember to review medications. Verify that she is not on any type of birth control. Some types of birth control can potentially stop menses altogether due to suppression of the endometrium. And it is very important to obtain a sexual history to rule out pregnancy. Another important question to ask is if there is a family history of menstrual disorders in the mother or other female members. Yes, if the patient's mother or a sibling have been diagnosed with a condition related to amenorrhea, the same condition could be more likely in the patient. Let's also not forget to ask both the parent and the patient about changes in mood, behavior, and any new stressors. That's right. Stress can temporarily affect the hypothalamic function and alter menstruation. Screening for depression and anxiety could also be helpful here. So for our patient, she reports feeling more tired than usual, but she has a very busy schedule, including participating in both soccer and cross-country at school. Meals are usually quick from the drive-thru or she'll only have a granola bar for dinner due to her busy practice schedule. She admits to skipping breakfast most mornings because she doesn't wake up on time. She's maintaining A's and B's in school. Overall, she denies feeling anxious or depressed. Sounds like a very busy gal. We've gone over quite a bit of helpful information that we'll need to keep in mind. Let's quickly recap. When evaluating an adolescent female presenting with a menstrual abnormality, it is important to understand the standard definitions of a normal versus abnormal menstrual cycle. A thorough history and review of systems will help narrow the differential diagnosis. Dr. Sharma, let's move on to the physical exam of our patient. Our patient is fit but thin, tall girl with proper secondary sexual characters. Based on her weight and height, her BMI is 16.5, which is around the fourth percentile for girls aged 16 years. She's considered underweight compared to other girls her age. Mary Beth, what other important physical exam findings should you be looking for when evaluating a female with a menstrual disorder? Like Lauren briefly mentioned earlier, I would look for signs of hyperandrogenism, such as excessive acne or hirsutism. That's right. Loss of menses could be attributable to adrenal gland dysfunction, as well as conditions such as polycystic ovary syndrome, also called PCOS. Lauren, could you tell listeners about PCOS? Sure. PCOS is a very common cause of amenorrhea or oligomenorrhea, which is infrequent menstrual periods less than six to eight cycles per year. It's diagnosed when patients meet two out of the three Rotterdam criteria. The Rotterdam criteria includes the presence of oligomenorrhea or amenorrhea, polycystic ovaries that are visualized on ultrasound, or biochemical or clinical evidence of hyperandrogenism. This means that patients could be diagnosed based on clinical features alone, although lab work and imaging are commonly included in the workup. Great job. Off note, there's a great deal of overlap between the features of PCOS and those of normal puberty. 
irregular menses, acne and polycystic ovarian morphology on ultrasound can all be seen with normal puberty, making the diagnosis of PCOS in an adolescent patient more difficult. Overall, PCOS is recognized as a multifactorial disorder with genetic, endocrine and metabolic factors that all play a part. Doesn't insulin resistance also play an important role? Yes, PCOS has been shown to be associated with obesity, but this is not always the case. Mary Beth, what do you know about the pathophysiology of PCOS and how it leads to irregular menstrual periods? In PCOS, there is an imbalance in luteinizing hormone, or LH, and follicle-stimulating hormone, or FSH. Gonadotropin-releasing hormone pulsatility from the hypothalamus is more rapid, which causes the pituitary gland to release more LH than FSH. Chronically elevated LH leads to increased androgen production by the ovaries. In addition, high insulin levels suppress production of sex hormone binding globulin, resulting in increased levels of free testosterone. However, FSH levels are not high enough to produce a dominant follicle. This then leads to an anovulatory menstrual cycle and dysregulated menstrual periods. Good job explaining that. Dr. Sharma, our patient does not have signs of hyperandrogenism and her low BMI decreases the likelihood of PCOS. Right. Okay, well, it sounds like our patient is healthy. She's thin, but very physically active. Should a pelvic exam be part of the routine exam? Good question. Typically, a pelvic exam is not required below the age of 21, unless we have concerns about trauma or congenital anomalies. Since our patient has had periods in the past, we aren't worried about a genital tract obstruction. What about labs? As far as labs go, you should always go ahead and order a urine pregnancy test for any adolescent female that comes in with menstrual irregularity. And a pregnancy test is quick and non-invasive. Even if the patient and the caretaker deny any history of sexual activity, it's still a very important possibility to rule out. For our patient who we suspect has secondary amenorrhea, other initial labs to get would include levels of LH, FSH, prolactin, and TSH, which is thyroid-stimulating hormone. Correct. Quick quiz on how these labs help narrow our differential diagnosis. If FSH and LH levels are high, this indicates normal pituitary function with absent negative feedback from the ovaries. That would mean that an ovarian abnormality is more likely, right? Yes. So what conditions would you need to consider? These labs could be consistent with either Turner syndrome, primary ovarian insufficiency, or PCOS. Great. What if FSH and LH are low? If both are low, I would think about a problem with the pituitary gland or hypothalamus. Good job. But remember, having a normal FSH and LH doesn't always rule out the presence of a disorder, especially if there are clinical symptoms present. What about prolactin? Loss of menses could also be caused by abnormal levels of prolactin in the body. What type of clinical symptoms would prompt you to order a prolactin level? I would be concerned if a patient reported headaches, visual field loss, or nipple discharge. Good job! Lauren, what else do you want to know? As we previously mentioned, an overactive thyroid gland or hyperthyroidism and an underactive thyroid gland or hypothyroidism can both cause menstrual irregularities, including amenorrhea. And if there are positive physical exam findings concerning for hyperandrogenism, we should evaluate for PCOS, as well as other conditions like a testosterone-producing ovarian tumor, adrenal tumor, or congenital adrenal hyperplasia. To do this, we would order testosterone levels, DHEAS, 
17-hydroxyprogesterone, and labs to rule out insulin resistance, such as glucose studies. You're on a roll, ladies. Let's get back to our patient. What if the urine pregnancy test was negative and all of her labs were found to be within the normal reference ranges? What else can you tell me about our patient? Our patient is a 16-year-old multi-sport athlete who admits to skipping breakfast and often eats small, quick meals. She had normal menses previously, but has not had a period for the past five months. She has appropriate secondary sexual characteristics, but her BMI is underweight at 16.5. On physical exam, she does not have any signs of hyperandrogenism. Her labs are normal. Based on this information, I'm concerned that our patient is at risk for the female athlete triad. Excellent summary of our patient, Lauren. This is a great opportunity to talk about the female athlete triad, which is a disorder that's perhaps underdiagnosed in a clinical practice. It may be also called functional hypothalamic amenorrhea. It's increasingly important to recognize that teenage girls make up the fastest growing segment of children and adolescents participating in organized athletics. Yes, while there are so many emotional, physical, and social benefits to participating in sports, there are unique challenges to the female adolescent athlete. Maybeth, what's your understanding of the female athlete triad? It's a combination of three interrelated conditions associated with athletic training, including disordered eating behavior, amenorrhea, and low bone mass. That's right. This condition can actually be diagnosed if any of these three things is present. Amenorrhea associated with female athlete triad results from reduced energy availability below a threshold of 30 kilocalories per kg per day of lean body mass. Lauren, what do you know about this? Well, when there is a negative energy balance, this affects both the nutritional state and reproductive system of the individual. The amenorrhea is due to hypothalamic changes with slowing of the gonadotropin-releasing hormone pulses which leads to hypogonadotropic hypogonadism. This causes decreased estrogen production. Exactly, and those decreased estrogen levels along with other hormonal changes such as increased cortisol levels cause loss of bone mineral density and insufficient bone development. This would place a developing adolescent at risk of fractures and increased morbidity. Yes, especially since a low body mass index is a predictor for low bone mineral density which can be seen in the spine, proximal femur, and wrist. The low density can make stress factors in amenorrheic athletes more common. That's why it's so important for providers at all health screening visits and pre-sports participation physical exams to pay special attention and screen for features of the triad. So Dr. Sharma, how do we initiate treatment once we have identified risk for or presence of the female athlete triad? The good news is that normal ovulation in menses can be recovered in athletes presenting with amenorrhea with early recognition, counseling, and treatment. The first step involves decreasing the amount of exercise as well as increasing caloric intake. What if the athlete is resistant to these changes? That is a very common challenge. Most athletes may not even realize that there is a problem. If not addressed, bone loss could be partially irreversible even if menstrual cycles are resumed and nutritional state is improved. It seems like discussing the physical consequences, such as the potential for decreased strength and endurance if left untreated, may be more motivating. Dr. Sharma, what other helpful strategies are there? Of course, the athlete's family needs to be involved. Family can provide support and create a positive environment to increase the chances for success. 
It's important to have a dietitian as well to provide nutritional education and help the athlete develop a plan for increasing calories to meet nutritional needs, including calcium supplementation. So how do you assess nutritional status in terms of bone health? It may be helpful to measure vitamin D levels and consider a DEXA scan to look for signs of osteoporosis or fractures that are already present or for use as a baseline for future comparisons. What about hormone supplementation? Is this an option for patients with secondary amenorrhea, such as our patient? It is recommended to restore menses with gradual changes in nutrition and exercise rather than with pharmacological treatment. Providers should be cautious about initiating hormonal supplementation with oral contraceptive pills as they induce withdrawal bleeding, not restoration of spontaneous menses. This may lead to a false sense of security that hormonal imbalance is improving as well as delay lifestyle changes and actually worsen bone health. That sounds like a very difficult balance. Yes. And remember that lifestyle changes may result in return of ovulation before return of menses. So hormonal supplementation may be considered if the adolescent desires contraception. What if lifestyle changes are still ineffective or difficult to maintain? If menses have not returned after 6 to 12 months of non-pharmacologic therapy, estrogen replacement may be considered at that time. In regards to the third part of the triad, disordered eating, in the context of amenorrhea, what is the role of the primary care provider in addressing this? Well, the disordered eating behavior can include anorexia nervosa, bulimia nervosa, or simply an atypical eating pattern. Any caloric or fat restriction, binging or purging, could be associated. As far as management, this is beyond the scope of our discussion today, but a multidisciplinary approach that includes a psychology or psychiatry referral should be made, and the progress should continue to be monitored by the primary care provider. Thank you so much, Dr. Sharma. Well, it's time to wrap up our episode. Let's review the key points regarding amenorrhea in the female adolescent patient. Today, we discussed the distinction between primary and secondary amenorrhea. Primary amenorrhea is when a female patient 15 years or older has never had a menstrual period, the patient has not had a menstrual period within three years of breast development, or has not had breast development by the age of 13. Secondary amenorrhea is when a patient who previously had regular menses does not have a period for over three months, or a patient with previously irregular menses does not have a period for over six months. We also talked about important aspects of the history and physical exam, paying attention to secondary sexual characteristics, aspects of lifestyle, including exercise, nutrition, and weight, as well as symptoms related to endocrine function. We discussed obtaining and interpreting relevant labs, such as a urine pregnancy test, serum LH, FSH, prolactin, and TSH. We highlighted a common cause of secondary amenorrhea, the female athlete triad or functional hypothalamic amenorrhea. This is a type of hypogonadotropic hypogonadism that causes estrogen deficiency, and it's characterized by disordered eating behavior, absence of menses, and low bone mass. Treatment includes decreasing exercise and increasing caloric intake, as well as involving a multidisciplinary team to address aspects of the condition related to nutrition and mental health. Overall, pediatricians should be able to recognize disorders related to amenorrhea to allow for early detection and promotion of proper treatment and referral when necessary. Thank you so much, Dr. Sharma. Thank you for having me. We would like to thank Dr. Rebecca Yang and Dr. Aaron Latif, who peer-reviewed today's discussion. 
Also, a big thanks to Maggie Shaw, a medical student at MCG, for contributing to the content of today's episode. Thank you for listening to this episode from the Department of Pediatrics at the Medical College of Georgia. If you have any comments, suggestions, or feedback, you can email us at mcgpediatricpodcast at augusta.edu. Remember that all content during this episode is intended for educational purposes only. It should not be used as medical advice to diagnose or treat any particular patient. Clinical vignette cases presented are based on hypothetical patient scenarios. Free CME credit is available for today's episode. Follow the link on our website for access. We look forward to speaking to you on our next episode of the MCG Pediatric Podcast.